Let's, uh, let's pray as we start this evening, and then we will jump back in. Pray with me. God, thank you that we have an opportunity to come in safety, that we have a shelter and we're not out in the snowflakes. Uh, thank you that we have one another. And we look forward to learning from you and to learning from one another, from learning from your word this evening as well. Amen. Okay, so the final two weeks, if you want to, if you're a person that really likes a 30,000 foot view, uh, the final two weeks are no longer continuing the main argument. We kind of established the main argument with the first four weeks where we talked about how we would find truth. Then we talked about whether or not God exists, whether or not we would expect him to speak to us. Uh, We talked about what that then means for the scripture and then what that means for Jesus. So in the last two weeks, I want to cover kind of two main blocks uh, that we um, that I feel like come up as a result anytime I end up talking apologetics with people. Uh, Before I do that, a couple of things that Jesse wants me to plug. Uh, We've got. uh, we've got some more than a carpenter copies. You've heard me reference that book a couple of times as like an easy in for somebody that if you're afraid of maybe having this conversation with somebody, uh, I would encourage you, number one, stop being afraid. Let the Holy Spirit use you. But number two, uh, as part of your conversation that you're not going to be afraid to have, maybe you'll give them some reading points. More than a carpenter can be a nice, easy way in to kind of have those touch points that are going to hit all these major areas that we have hit with our time together. So there's some copies over there if you guys need to get a hold of those. Um, And then, uh, so we will have this week and then next week, and that will be the end of our apologetics block. Then we're gonna take a couple of weeks off from uh, study, uh, although we've got, we're kicking around some ideas of what to do with those weeks. And then we'll come back with Wayne picking up his block that he talked about uh, this morning. So uh, as our second to last, what I wanna spend the evening doing is discussing common objections to Christianity. And what I'm going to do is recognize right off the bat that there are a variety of objections to Christianity. I cannot uh, just pick, I can't pick every single one of them that might come up. But we're we're in a culture right now um, that has leveraged itself in a variety of different ways against the message of Christianity. What I'm going to do is discuss probably the three main ways that I have seen and give you some tools to address those, but recognize first before we dive in that there are two things that are immediately working against us, and I put them on your sheet. There are, there are two key objection problems that the scripture tells us that we're going to consistently find. The first one that we see in John 8, 43 to 44, is that we are surrounded by lies. We're surrounded by lies. <clears throat> in that text, which I encourage you to look at a little bit later, although we have looked at it uh, on our Sunday morning series as we've been going through John. John t- I'm sorry, Jesus talks to the religious leaders, telling them that the main reason why they have a hard time accepting Jesus' statements is because they are sons of their father, Satan. And Satan, using as his primary tool, lies. Remember how lies work, just off the top of your head, okay? Remember how lies work. Tell me, to get your mind flowing, tell me, how do lies work? Okay, so there's some deceit involved. 
If you were going to structure an effective lie, how would you structure it? There's a little bit of truth. I, hear, I actually heard a couple of people say that at one time. Somebody else tell me what that means by that. Yeah, so you want to give them enough truth to make them feel comfortable, but enough falsehood to lead them off the course, right? I'm not, it's not going to be a very effective lie for me to stand here and go, my shirt is red, everyone. My shirt is red. Because all of you are pretty familiar with the color red and can look at my shirt and recognize, oh my word, that shirt is not red. So you're not going to be inclined to that, right? What you're going to want to do to, to pick an effective lie is to work with something that seems true initially, but then just slightly deviate its course. I'm sure that mar many of you are not mariners, but if you understand the concept of trying to pilot a boat, think about think, if you've ever looked at a compass before. Have you ever seen a compass before where the needle's kind of moving around? The, the difference between here and here are very small when I'm right here, right? It seems almost imperceptible to be here and to be here. But if you follow them to their logical points of conclusion, the farther I go, the farther away from the truth I'm going to get between here and here. Does that make sense? And that's the culture you need to be aware of because Satan's main business is to try to collect as many followers as he can. And what he's going to do is he's not going to out and out just go, hey, I'm Satan, everybody come worship me, although he's been somewhat successful at doing that even. What he's going to do is try to take the truth, a little bit of the truth, but just slightly deviate it so that people are going to gradually get farther and farther away from the truth. You're surrounded by lies. Number two, the other thing that works against us, point B, we've already seen this in Romans 1, is that people are in the business of truth suppression. Truth suppression. Paul talks about in Romans 1 how the, how the wrath of God is reasonable upon human beings because so many of us are in the business of suppressing the truth of looking at something that is obviously true and going, if I follow the logical extension of that, that's going to significantly change my course of action, which I'm really comfortable with right now. So what I'm going to do is suppress that truth. I'm going to slightly just move that away. I'm going to move that out of my conscious thinking, and I'm not going to deal with it. Denial, right? I'm going to continue to move forward in the direction that I want to. When we're surrounded by those two problems, we are facing an insurmountable problem. And I would tell you that were it not for the Holy Spirit, people probably wouldn't come to a knowledge of the truth. That's a very minimalistic way of saying what probably could be said stronger. We need the Holy Spirit to know truth. We need, the Holy, we need God to guide us to truth because we're surrounded by lies and we are in the business of suppressing the truth. And that process what we learn in Romans 12, verse 2, the next point on your outline, is that the repair has to happen through the renewing of your mind. I'm sure many of you have memorized Romans 12, 1 and 2. Somebody, somebody give me the general concept that's there. Okay, so offer your bodies as a living sacrifice is verse 1, right? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the only thing that's reasonable in light of all the stuff that Paul has talked about in Romans 1 through 11. That's the only thing that makes sense. So how do you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice according to Romans 12, 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. If you're surrounded by lies 
and you're in the business of suppressing truth, the way that we've got to get course corrected is by the renewal of our mind. So we've got to be able to be addressing these false ideas, recognizing them as false and addressing them. We're going to talk about three different main ideas that people use to distract them from the core. They, they need some course correction back to Jesus. The three that we're going to deal with tonight. Fortunately, <clears throat> Wayne already covered a third of what we need to handle by uh, his message this morning. So that'll be great. If you, if you uh, don't identify well with the way that I teach and better with Wayne, then plug your ears for the first point. But the first one will be uh, talking about the fact that there are many ways to God, many ways to God. The second problem that I commonly see is people will say, and, and we'll get there, you're not writing anything down yet. The second problem is that science somehow has rendered religion and specifically Christianity as useless or shown it to be obsolete, information we don't need anymore. And finally, where we're going to finish, the problem that seems to come up the most is God can't possibly exist if evil exists. Those are the three things that we're going to deal with. Did you bring, a, bring enough lunch, John? I will not be offended if any of you go over there and take advantage of those sandwiches. All right, so the first problem that I want to talk about tonight is the problem of religious plurality. The key question is, is Jesus the only way? According, I love that answer. According to whom? Yeah, according to Jesus, he thinks he's the only way. That's somewhat significant, right? And we, and we covered that two weeks ago when we talked about Jesus. What the New Testament will not allow is allow for a vision of Jesus that thinks of himself as just a simple moral teacher. Jesus thought of himself as the only way to the Father. But he wasn't the only one. I, I put a couple of different uh, references on here to kind of establish that there are multiple points in Scripture where it is recognized that Jesus is the only way. My friends... As much as I want the concept of universalism to be true, um, the scriptures don't seem to teach that. And by universalism, what, I, what I'm saying is that everyone in the end gets saved. I want that to be the case. I really do, because it makes me, the opposite of that makes me uncomfortable. But I want to unpack that, that idea a little bit. And when we start to unpack it, the first place we need to look is scripture. And scripture is very clear that Jesus is the only way to have a restored relationship with God the Father. So um, there is one way to God the Father is point A there. So then point B, are all gods the same? <clears throat> so Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 very clearly states, no, 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 no. There is only one God and Father and one Lord Jesus Christ. Paul clearly lays out there, and that was, uh, I miswrote there, it's four through six instead of four through seven. Four, uh, verse seven isn't going to really lead you astray, but it doesn't directly address the issue that we're discussing. First Corinthians eight is Paul's message telling them that there is only one God. However, I also want to look at this philosophically, okay? Go with me on this. I know that some of you, when I say that, you start to just like break out in hives and start to twitch a little bit, but when you study the philosophical discipline of what's called metaphysics, okay, what you start to deal with is that two things, and here's the point, two things cannot have different properties, two things cannot have different properties and be the same thing, okay? 
And even though that may sound like a fancy philosophical explanation, it's really not that difficult to believe. Okay? May I borrow these for a moment? Yes, are these the same hat? No. no. Good. You are intelligent philosophers. <laughs> Tell me why. They are indeed different. Thank you, Wayne. <laughs> different materials, different... You're starting to describe it, right? Different bill, different colors, different shapes. They have different qualities or characteristics. What philosophers do to explain that is they say they have different properties from one another. This hat has the property of billness. This hat has the property of fuzziness etc, etc. Okay? They're not the same. The very fact that I even, now we start to get a little bit philosophical confusing, but it's not, it's not hard. The very fact that I can hold them in two different hands indicates that they are not the same hat. For if they were the same hat, I could not hold them in two separate hands, right? They'd have to be exactly the same. Okay? So here's the thing. If we can recognize it with hats, we could probably pretty easily recognize it when it comes to gods. Two gods cannot be one in the same God if they have different properties from one another. This is important because as Wayne drew the, the word picture for us, there is a common idea out there that all of us are climbing the same mountain. We're just using different trails to get there, but we're all going to land in relationship with the same God at the end. That's kind of the common thought out there. Here's the problem. If those trails are all somehow correct, their description of God should equal the same thing. And yet their descriptions are very different from one another. It's, uh, just look at it real quickly in terms of the religions that you're probably familiar with. Um, we've talked about the Mormon God. It, it, the Mormon God is actually a human, right, that just did really well and is now the God of our universe. And as God now is, we can become. That's not the same as the God of Jesus, right? That's not the same father that Jesus describes in the New Testament. They have different properties. I don't think it's very difficult for us to recognize then that when we look at the Hindu gods, the Hindus have millions of gods the reason why there are millions of gods is because they're not all the same. Well, then which one would we be going up the mountain to get to, right? Um, even, let's push it a little bit deeper into the core of what we become. The Jewish Yahweh that is currently followed by people that do not believe Jesus to be the Messiah is not an accurate picture of the same Yahweh that Jesus taught, is he? No, because when Jesus said, think of the passage that Wayne showed us even just this morning, when his followers are saying, show us the Father, and Jesus is going, goodness gracious, haven't you seen the Father by seeing me over this last three years? You've looked at the Father by looking at me. That seems to be very different than the Jews that would establish that Yahweh was not revealed in Jesus. That's a different God. Finally, Islam, right? I'm sure you're pretty familiar with a little bit of Islam. I don't know how much you know about Islam, but the Islamic God, Allah, is not in Trinity with one another. And I know that Trinity is a very 
difficult concept for us to discuss, and we will discuss it in a future block when we, fo when we focus more specifically on theology. But Yahweh is in Trinity. He is a triune God. One God in three persons. Allah is not. So can they be the same? They're not. They're not. So what we're recognizing there is there's a possibility of one of two things, right? Either everyone that's going up the path is wrong, or there's really not, uh, all these paths don't lead to the same God. Either way, we've got a problem with a plurality of religions. Well, here's the problem then that people see, that people come to in point C. How can then God condemn people who never have a chance to hear? Or a very common uh, way in which I hear this question, how can a loving God send people to hell? Have you ever heard this question before? Have you ever struggled with this question yourself? I think that's a fair question, right? And the scripture itself sometimes might lead us to a little bit of a misunderstanding. We've got 1 Timothy 2.4 that tells us that God wants all to be saved. God actually wants all people to be saved. Well, isn't he powerful enough to do so? So why doesn't he do that? Well, we'll discuss that. If God wants all people to be saved, my main response to somebody that would struggle with that is, is to ask them a question, do you think that that's the only thing that God wants? Just think about it in a, for a second. I, th I think we have a tendency to think about salvation as it relates to us. But remember, friends, at best, we are secondary or tertiary characters in a story that is not our own. This is not our story. We are side characters. If we were a sitcom, we'd be the guy that like showed up in the background of something and then disappeared again. The very fact that God lowers himself enough to interact with you on an individualistic basis boggles my mind. God has far more wants than just saving mankind because God is bigger than just that. For instance, point A, God wants to uphold justice. God is the standard of justice and righteousness. He cannot be anything other than the standard of justice and righteousness. And if that is the case, then he cannot, and we will talk about later, he cannot save everybody, which might be difficult for people to initially deal with. But the point B starts to round out the idea. He also wants to maintain freedom. If God wants to maintain freedom, in doing so, he provides us the opportunity to reject him. Doesn't he? If God wants us to be free, which there's a variety of reasons why he might want to do that. Just think about them. Would you want to force your kids to love you or would you rather them love you because they do? Instead of making them, forcing them to love you. You will love me. You will respect me. And it never happens. Instead, it, that's exactly what they are, right? They're constructing, you'd be constructing illegitimate love because it would be forced. God has instead the desire to maintain human freedom and also has the desire to maintain justice. Those two concepts in and of themselves mean that God wants to maintain the opportunity 
for people to reject him. Inasmuch as it bothers him, he would like everyone to be saved. So then the question is, does everyone ultimately get the chance? Does everyone get a chance in the end? Let me just share this idea with you, okay? Remember what I said if you were here, if you've been here from the very beginning, kudos, by the way, kudos for you, especially sticking it out through to this point, using your time you normally would be kicking back uh, in your lazy boy and coming and trying to dig a little bit deeper. Good job. But what I said from the very beginning is that I may share ideas with you that may not officially, these are not the official views of Sierra Bible Church, and I may share ideas with you that you are free to disagree with, okay? I want to share an idea with you as a possibility, not necessarily because I believe it, but because I think it's an intriguing argument or discussion to to think about. Number one, in point D, God is intimately aware of all of his creations. One need not look further than Psalm 139 to recognize that God knows you better than you. Right? Which is my point two here. Thus, God knows what you want. Let me make sure I get your right blank. God knows what you want better than you do. God knows what you want better than you do. Point three, God wants all to be saved. You follow me so far? I don't think any of these things are controversial, okay? Then we come to point four. This might be controversial, but we spent a significant amount of time indicating that it, is, that it is true, both from Scripture and from the life of Jesus. But salvation only comes through Jesus, And in case the scriptural references that have come before here have not been enough, I put another one there for you, Romans 10, 9 through 15, making it very clear that Jesus must be the way through which we experience relationship with God the Father. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, right? That's the the wording that's used there. The question comes down to when must this confession take place? Here's the idea I want to share with you. There are some people out there, and I'm not saying that I'm espousing this idea officially. I'm saying that there's part of me that likes using this idea as a reconciliation with some of these ideas that are in tension. But there's part of me that essentially says that I have a really hard time believing that God would reject somebody that actually wants to be with him. Okay? I I just have a hard time believing that that if somebody actually wants to be with God, that he would reject that person. Now, the question would be, how can that person then confess that Jesus is Lord? Well, Paul's argument in the very text that I've given you is that they've got to have somebody come and give them the good news. That's the way that things have set up. And as a result, people people believe, and I think rightly so, or have good reasons to believe so, that they must hear of Jesus through a mouthpiece that God uses, i.e. you and me, in order to then have the opportunity to confess Jesus. Here's the problem that I have with that. How was Abraham justified? Those of you that are familiar with the argument of Romans. By faith. Faith in whom? In God. Did, was he familiar with Jesus? Was he even familiar with the idea of Jesus at that point? 
No. How was David justified? By faith, right? This is now I'm getting into the argument of the book of Hebrews, that faith is the justificatory uh, grounds upon which we have the relationship with God. And where it becomes expressed is the question. Here's where I'm just going to leave it at. And I know that this leaves people feeling very uncomfortable because they'd like me to give them a definitive answer. But here's the thing. We're talking about this in the context of apologetics. Okay? So I'm talking about this in the context of I want somebody to have no roadblocks to understanding God and entering a relationship with that, with that God. If that person is so tore up by the possibility that God could condemn somebody that has never said the name Jesus, I think that there's an open possibility for us to make the argument that God will still, through Jesus, justify that person, even without exposing them in this life to the word Jesus. And that could happen in a variety of ways. The question is when. I'll let you ask your question, then I want to share a story with you. right or wrong based on the fact that they, that they believe that something is wrong and they don't do what is wrong and they believe that something is right and they do what is right? So this opens up a really big conversation, which is the same door I'm knocking on right now, that is, a, is a, dis, a point of disagreement for various Christians, Christians who are brothers and sisters to you and I. Some that would say that, yes, that general, all that general revelation can do is provide enough information for them to be condemned because they could see God, but they refuse to worship him. But others would make the argument that what Paul is saying is that that natural revelation, that general revelation, remember when we talked about general versus special revelation, that that general revelation is actually sufficient for them to express faith, which can then further in the argument in Romans, be the grounds upon which they are justified. The question is when, right? And, and the fact is, I, here's where I'm just going to tell you where I land because I don't want to spend so much time on something that doesn't leave you feeling definitive. People hate that, right? You want, you want me to give you something definitive. The, and, and the fact is, here's where I'm going to rest. I'm going to rest on one, that God wants everyone to be saved. On two, that rare, I don't think anyone's going to be dragged into the kingdom of heaven kicking and screaming against their will. I think instead God's going to turn to them and say, thy will be done. But three, that if somebody wants to be with God because he wants them to be saved, he will do so. How he will go about doing that, I think in most cases, the scriptural point is that he wants to use you and I to share that message. That's what's shown in scripture. He wants to do that. But there are other ways as well. For instance, I remember talking to a missionary at one point who shared with me about a woman that he had worked with in an Islamic culture and had no access to Jesus whatsoever. And she was haunted night after night with these eyes in her dreams that were staring at her and she could not make it go away. She would wake up in night sweats with no way to make it stop until one night with no prior information whatsoever, she sat up in her bed and screamed out the words uncontrollably, save me, Jesus. Where had she heard that before? I don't know. But the fact is, God is in the business of redeeming mankind. He wants 
people to be with him and he will find a way. What scripture will show us is that the majority of the time he wants to use us. But if there's going to be a point in which somebody is blocked out saying there's no possibility that somebody that had never been exposed to the word Jesus, that they could be saved. I think that there might be a little bit of grounds within Christendom to say, I don't know, maybe, maybe God could do it in certain way, in certain other ways. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's a good picture to kind of drive home the point because I want to be clear about what I'm saying. No one will be saved outside of Jesus. No one will be saved outside of Jesus. And so what I, what I probably could say firmly to better communicate what I'm trying to say is that when that person comes face to face with Jesus, it will be 100% like, of course, this is everything that I have always thought to be true. The question will be the time frame and the method. God wants to use you and I primarily. That's his primary task. But there are, um, I think there's a little bit of openness, especially if that's going to be the stumbling block for somebody to giving their life over to God. Yeah. But in Islamic culture, people have never been evangelized by the use and means of this world. And God is revealing himself to them through dreams and visions. Right, right. I mean, we just don't think about that stuff happening very often because we're in a culture that that doesn't seem to manifest itself for a variety of reasons. But God seems to be doing that worldwide, right? So, okay, all of that to say... Um, <clears throat> The primary, the primary problem that we're dealing with is, is Jesus the only way? The simple answer is yes, but let's deal. There are, some, there are some things that people might be nitpicking about each of that component. Hopefully, you'll have some tools to deal with that problem. Let's look at the next problem. Science and Christianity. Does science refute Christianity? Re- okay, thank you. We're done. <laughs> um, Here's the thing, and, and I've kind of unpacked this elsewhere in our, in our time together, so I'll spend a little bit less time on this idea. Uh, but just a couple of quick ideas to share with you in response to this very common objection. I don't know how, how much you have dealt with it in your personal interactions with people. Um, me having a lot of experience in the academic world, uh, I've dealt with a whole lot more of that, that science has rendered Christianity and other religions obsolete. Um, here's the problem is that science is not the only truth finder. Science is not the only truth finder. And we know this not through science, but we know this through philosophy. Philosophy tells us in uh, point one there that we have a self-refuting statement, self-refuting statement. Self-refuting is hyphenated if you really want to be a grammar warrior. Here's the self-refuting statement that I hear all the time. Only that which can be discovered through science can be considered fact. Uh, You guys are giggling. 
This is commonly believed, especially by scientists, <laughs> that only, only that which can be discovered through science can be considered fact. Here's the problem. How do we prove that scientifically? <laughs> yeah, we can't get there from here. I like that. <laughs> we can't. Well, that's... Right, and that's the scientific method in general. Um, But the problem is that the mere statement that you can only use science to find truth is not a scientific statement. You can't empirically, like using physical materials, you can't test that. That's not a scientific statement. That is instead a philosophical statement. Scientists did not know that they were making a philosophical assertion when they say that you can only use science to find out if anything's true. That's a self-refuting statement. So what that shows us immediately is that something other than science shows truth. Something other than, and scientists themselves believe that. They just don't know they believe it yet. Science also depends, I don't have this in your notes, so don't go looking for it, but science also depends on a variety of non-physical entities. Non-physical entities. Things like the fact that our sense perceptions lead us to accuracy. When I see something, that it's accurate. That my perception of it is accurate. Those are, that all of that is substantiated through philosophy. Even the very idea of logic, that two ideas can lead to a truth. That's not a scientifically testable concept. It's a, that's a non-physical entity. Even the idea that truth is important in general. That's more of a moral claim than a scientific claim, that truth is important. That's more of a moral claim than than a scientific claim. Science needs something other than science to establish it, okay? That's kind of the first concept. But then B, because I think that this is probably the bigger place where I end up seeing this. B, does evolution make Christianity false? Okay, all right. So here's the thing. First of all, first of all, take care who you're talking to. And there are no blanks in that line because this is probably the most important part underneath that line. Take care who you are talking to. The theory of evolution is indeed a theory. Oh, but my friends, it is a holy theory. It is not a theory that you would question and not a theory that is even open to question for many people that come from a scientific background. I don't know what circles you run in, but there are actually a lot of scientists that live up here. They're masquerading as ski lift operators and full-time travelers and whatever the case may be, but they have uh, tour guides, yeah, but they have science backgrounds. And for you to immediately question evolution is to immediately attack one of their core beliefs. Is that worth doing? As a philosopher, I say, yes, all ideas are worth attacking at some point. That's how we think. That's that's how we grow. However, you got to be strategic. One of the verses that drives a lot of people crazy because it's misinterpreted so often is when Jesus says, do not throw your pearls before swine. In so doing, they uh, they will trample them and then turn and destroy you. 
And people have a tendency to misinterpret that verse significantly and take it in all kinds of crazy directions. But if you look at it in the context in which Jesus teaches that, what he's saying is you've got to be strategic. Be careful. You don't just run up to a herd of pigs and throw precious things at them. Pigs I don't have a lot of experience with them, but my, what I am familiar with is that they are very tasty, despite the fact that they spend the majority of their lives wallowing in mud. I don't think that they spend a whole lot of time appreciating precious gems. Just probably not what I think pigs do. Yeah, okay, right? Jesus is saying you gotta be strategic. And so this is why I'm sharing this with you as the most important part. Evolution is a holy theory for a lot of the scientists outside that door. Attacking evolution, especially with somebody who has studied it in great detail, will probably be a losing proposition for you initially. You'll probably lose, which might be really healthy for you. Okay? I've, been in, I've lost many a conversation about evolution, realizing that I knew less than I thought I did. That's a healthy thing. However, that being said, Evolution itself, even if you don't question the holy theory of evolution, there are a variety of places inside Christianity. Again, I'm going back to these categories of things that may not be the official position, okay? But evolution itself is harmonizable with Scripture. There are three different ways that people have actually tried to harmonize evolution. So do you see what I'm doing right now? And I'm going to finish up by making the same point. I'm not telling you that evolution is true, okay? I think evolution needs to be discussed as a theory based upon its own merits. Maybe it's true, maybe it's false. Let's look at the facts and try to figure it out. However, if at the end of the day, it is obvious that evolution is true, that does not make scripture false. There are three different ways in which Christians have harmonized evolution with Scripture. Historically, you need to understand them. Number one, theistic evolution. That evolution, essentially what these people say, is that evolution, the mechanism of evolution, is true. That God used evolution to create Well, certainly, we may have a problem with the first two things we discussed about, right? That they are surrounded by lies and they want to suppress the truth. But that's why I don't discuss the issue of evolution first. I discuss, I, I go back to the things that we've talked about before. Is God, does God exist? I think the evidence indicates that yes, God exists and then has manifested himself in Jesus. Well, then what do I do with evolution that has shown me for so long that God doesn't exist? What I'm trying to show you is that historically there have been ways in which Christianity has harmonized evolution being true with the other facts that we've discussed. The first one being theistic evolution, that God used evolution to create. The second one, or the way in which they start to work with this in Scripture, they are referred to as old earth creationists. Old earth creationists. And what old earth creationists do is they essentially say, we're going to look at the scientific facts that evolutionists are using, and we're going we're to allow the dating methods that they're using, saying things are millions upon millions, hundreds of millions of years old, 
And they're, what they're going to do is essentially say what they often sometimes are referred to as the day age theorists, that they look at the account in Genesis and say when it says the word day, instead of day being a reference to 24 hours, that day is a reference kind of like when the Old Testament uses the term day of the Lord, the period or the time frame in which God did something. There's some possibility of making that work. It can work interpretationally. That's a possibility. Finally, another way in which this has been used, and you need to understand that this is not some new fancy pants liberal interpretation, all the way back to Augustine and Aquinas, there have been believers that have established or, or believed that Genesis is what's called an allegorical, or they take an allegorical interpretation of Genesis. That Genesis is a story about God creating, not necessarily a detailed record of God's creation. It's a story about God creating instead of a detailed record of God's creation. Here's my point, okay? I wanted to expose those things to you. <clears throat> but my point, at least where I personally land, where I land, I've written out for you word for word here. And I've said this in other evenings. When all inquiries rightly interpret the facts, they're going to provide the same answer. If you do your scriptural interpretation and your science correctly, they're both going to point at the same truth. They're both going to point you to what's correct. So if science says one thing and the Bible says another thing, the first thing I'm going to look at is where am I misinterpreting facts? Because the answer is either in this one, in this one, or in both of them. And then I'm going to figure out how can I drive forward to the truth. So the question that I really want to be looking at is let's look at the facts, right? If you're going to tell me that evolution is true, let's look at the facts of evolution. Can I ask one quick little thing? Might as well. A, was it D, is it certain, D, or C, is it certain? Fee, 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 with a T-H, T-H. Yes. One of the things you said when we got back to the pearl before swine, one of the things I love so much about Robbie Zacharias, he talks a lot about, you know, basically know your audience, know where to go, you know, a lot of, lot of uh, discernment. And one, one, in one of his books, he talked about how within the sciences today, whether it's microbiology or astrophysics or whatnot, there's an awful lot of evidence coming up that says, somebody put this together. Yeah. And he said that one thing that happens is a scientist somewhere looking at all the evidence, a DNA guy or something, and all of a sudden he has this first thought that, and, he, and it's not God, it's not a creator, it's, it's that something, someone did this. And he says the guy starts poking his head up out of the hole, entertaining a thought he's never entertained in his whole life, and along comes an overzealous evangelical <laughs> and says, it will all happen in seven days. You've got to believe that or you can't. And he says, back down the hole. Yeah, exactly. They try to grab the gopher by the neck that's, that's poking out of the ground, right? And he said that the person hasn't even identified it as anything yet. Right. They're just entertaining a thought. Right. And are driven back to their old ground by some overzealous Christians. Right. Right. So I guess what I'm sharing with you is ultimately that same concept. You've got to give people the space to, to be in the process where they're at. Francis Schaeffer, who I think you quoted this morning as well, who is not quite as popular of an apologist, but he should be. Uh, he, 
very significant. And somebody asked him at one point, Francis, if you had one hour to uh, sit with somebody and try to lead them to Christ, what would you do? He said, I would listen for the first 55 minutes. (laughs) And this is a guy that knew his stuff, okay? Knew his stuff. Why? Because we need to figure out where is God already working in the heart of this individual? And what small role does he want me to play in the conversation? I'm giving you these tools to say, look, maybe you don't need to slam somebody in the face if you believe that it's a seven literal 24 hour period and that the earth is a whole lot younger than it looks, that's fine. There's reasons to believe that. And you can look at the facts to try to establish that. But is that the point at which you need to be having that conversation with the person who might need the freedom to go, oh wait, there are Christians that believe that evolution is true? Maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit might use that openness to cause them to come out of the whole a little bit more and a little bit more. That's what this role is. Is that making sense? Okay, because the last thing I want after this is to be stoned as a heretic, okay? (laughs) It might still be appropriate, but that's just not what I want. (laughs) All right, so then let's look at the third problem. Uh, The third problem I saved for last because I knew that you would be mentally exhausted by this point, and it's the toughest problem, and that way I could give it a weaker rendition, and you'd just think that I'm accurate. (laughs) This comes up over and over and over again. It's referred to commonly as the problem of evil. And the problem of evil essentially is this in its simplest form. If God is good and can do anything he wants, why does bad stuff happen? Why doesn't God make the bad stuff stop? That's the simplest version. And it shows itself in a variety of ways. What I want to do with this last section as we discuss it is I want you to be a little bit better at thinking systematically about how to address this problem. And it's not going to get to apologetics until we get down to the bottom. That ought to not be a big surprise to you. Okay? First, the first issue. Is this a debate or is it dire circumstances? Here's what I'm trying to ask. Is this a philosophical inquiry? This is point one. A philosophical inquiry? Or is it a pastoral need? Friends, after I spent thousands upon thousands of dollars to have degrees in this stuff, and then God gave me the opportunity almost immediately to go working into the church... The first few times in counseling sessions that somebody came to me facing evil in their life. My first inclination was to dive into all these fantastically philosophical answers that I had paid so much money for. And it didn't help. Why the heck not? (laughs) The main reason was that they weren't there for a philosophical discussion. They were there because they, they needed care for their souls. That's what that word pastor means, pastoral need. What's the actual need there? The discernment from the problem of evil needs to start first. What's going on right now? Is this person hurting and needs to understand why their child was just killed in a car accident? Is this a person who's trying to understand why their spouse just got cancer and received a two-month diagnosis? 
Or is this a person that wants to have a philosophical debate? Because if it's the first kind, if you start wielding the sword of philosophy as the tool, you're probably going to do more harm than good. And I can tell you that from experience. <laughs> from experience. People inevitably suffer. This is point A. And they want an explanation. Not every presentation of the problem of evil is an invitation for theological and philosophical discourse. It's not. And you need to be aware of that. You see, all worldviews attempt to answer this question. I was, I was uh, just this week alone, I got to sit in a classroom where a teacher was teaching a bunch of high schoolers about Buddhism. I don't know if you studied Buddhism much, but the core beginnings of Buddhism was its main follower trying to figure out, or I guess the, the guy that kind of started the main tenets of Buddhism, trying to deal with suffering. How do we make sense of suffering? It's kind of like a basic truth of, hu of human life. And all worldviews attempt to answer this question. So to close down this first point, in the time of need, Christians rarely need philosophical arguments. What they need to see is that their suffering is a call to God. What they need to see is that their suffering is a call to God. My friends, ultimately, I'm going to end in the same place philosophically that what I'm sharing with you right now from a more pastoral perspective. But when it comes down to it, God uses pain to draw us back to himself. And when somebody is coming to you in the midst of pain, they don't need an explanation. What they need is to recognize the call of God in their life. And what that looks like in your conversation, I'm sorry, I cannot tell you. That's why God will put you in that conversation and not me. And that's where you will pray silently in your mind, Holy Spirit, let me be your healing hands right now. Let me be the God that you are calling them to and let me point them to you so that they will no longer look at me and instead look at you and return to you. That's what the point of suffering will be as they look for that explanation. Okay? So that's the first and most important point about the problem of evil. Second, if we have determined that this is philosophical debate, we need to recognize that the question begs a Christian worldview. That the problem of evil begs, in order to ask the problem of evil, you are required, whether you like it or not, to have a Christian worldview to do so. What in the world are you talking about? Ah, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> Number one. Recognition of evil assumes a moral standard. If you're going to look at the world and say that it ought not be this way, the simple question back would be, why not? If naturalistic evolution, just series, a, a, a series of cause and effect over and over and over and over again got us to right now, why would you even have a place to question that it should be this way as opposed to any other way? This is the only way it can be. And we'll talk about that point more next week. But the point is, 
For you to say that evil ought not exist, you have to have a moral standard. And remember when we talked about arguments for God, that's one of the strongest arguments for God's existence in and of itself, that we feel that this world has a moral standard. The very fact that we feel like things ought to be a certain way and ought not be a certain way is in itself one of the strongest arguments for God's existence. So for you to ask the problem of evil assumes a Christian worldview. Second, the belief, and and I got ahead of myself, so I'll just fill in the blank here. The belief that things could be otherwise denies the physical necessity of the universe's conditions. I already shared this idea with you. This is just the formal presentation of it. The belief that it could be otherwise denies the physical necessity of the universe's conditions. Remember, friends, that if there is no uncaused cause, if there is no immaterial cause, no non-physical cause, that literally the only thing we're left with is cause and effect with physical material. Cause and effect with physical material. Cause and effect with physical material getting you to this point. We're going to talk about this at length. If that doesn't make sense to you right now, take heart. We will spend more time on that next week. But the point that I want to share with you is for you to think that the world could be anything other than that it is, is a Christian worldview. Because the only alternative is cause and effect getting us to the point that we we are. You need to have a Christian worldview even to ask the question. But let's just grant for the fact that, uh, well, let's just assume the Christian worldview is correct. Now let's deal with your problem. Your problem is, are we discussing, this is point C, are we discussing logical possibility? When we say that it is impossible for God to coexist with evil, what kind of impossibility are we dealing with? I'm sorry for a moment to return to philosophy, but I'm pretty sure you are primed to get there. Here's what we're dealing with. Is this statement logically contradictory? C1. Is this statement logically contradictory? And the statement that I'm referring to is the one that follows the question mark. Is this statement logically contradictory? That God is all-powerful and all-good and currently coexists with evil. In order to answer the question, I've got to share with you what logical possibility works works with. Okay, you ready? Mental exercise, right? Massage the temples. We're there. We're there. Okay, let's talk about logical possibility. Can God make 2 plus 2 equal 5? There could be, but assuming that there is not. Is there ever a world in which 2 plus 2 equals 5? No. No. Can God make a square circle? We'll get there. No, 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 we'll get there. We'll get there, okay? Because the way I normally hear this question, people seem to struggle with it even more. I tried to pick some ones that were pretty obvious. Apparently, they weren't obvious enough. The one that I normally hear is, could God make a rock so big he can't lift it, right? Each one of these things, the problem that they're dealing with is a question of what type of possibility are we discussing? 
And the reason why Christians struggle with this, okay, time to, time to receive a little bit of freedom in your Christian walk, is that it does not take away from God to say that he can't do the logically impossible. Friends, God cannot make two plus two equal five because that stems from his very nature. The created order that he has made the world necessarily is that way because that's the way he wanted it to be. He can't allow it to be anything other than that which stems from his nature. Anything else would be logically impossible. That doesn't take away from God. Where it's even easier to see, I think, is when you, because numbers totally fry my brain, is when you have, uh, can God make a square circle? No, it's not a circle anymore if it's a square. It's a square, right? That doesn't take anything away from God. We're not saying God is more wimpy because he can't do the logically impossible. So, the question, so when we're, we're dealing with the questions of logical possibilities, what you'll find when you have philosophers of religion that are like the heavy hitter guys, they'll be really technical when they talk about omnipotence, that God has all power, and they'll say that God can do all things that are logically possible. That's how they will carefully explain omnipotence. Because to think of God being able to do the logically impossible is just, un not only is it unnecessary, it's just not, not consistent with the nature of who God is himself. However, if we now understand the concept of logical possibility and God's relationship to it, all we need to do is look at the argument and ask, is this a logically impossible argument? Well, the question assumes three things. Point A that God can do anything logically possible, okay? See how I got you there? God can do anything logically possible. Point B, God always does what's best. But point C, am I going too fast? Slow down. God can do anything logically possible, point A. Point B, God always does what is best, point B. Point C, Bad things still happen. This is just a restatement of the argument. Okay? But all we need to establish then, I've written it out for you, and notice how I put it on the next page so you couldn't cheat. <laughs> if God can still do what is best while evil exists, there's no logical contradiction. If God can still do what is best, while evil still exists, there's no logical contradiction. He doesn't even need to reach into the realm of logical impossibility. All we need to be able to establish is that God can have a good reason for evil to be around. That would be a simple way of sharing what I've just step-by-step -step unpacked for you, okay? So then, do you see how we've got, we, we're, we're building our blocks to now we finally can answer the question. This is how slowly philosophers do things and in front they actually do it a whole lot slower than this so if you are agonizing don't get a degree in philosophy so the main discussion yeah, i love the noise that you just made there the main question then is how could the christian god exist in the face of such evil significant evil maybe let's put that in there significant evil friends i am so grateful for the timing of how God worked out things in my life. 
Because in the, in the class where I first was exposed to the technical arguments in response to the problem of evil, I was at the same time, we now do this on a yearly basis, but I was on the same time watching the 10-part series called Band of Brothers. I don't know if you're familiar with it. If you're not, you should be. Forget the Pacific, that one's a waste of time. But Band of Brothers is wonderful. I had not seen Schindler's List, okay? So I still haven't seen Schindler's List. I'm not sure that I could handle it. However, when I saw Band of Brothers, there is an episode towards the end where uh, the 101st Airborne, at least what's left of them at this point, go to liberate for the very first time a concentration camp of Jews. And for 15 minutes straight, you are exposed to these people who have been in this camp. (laughs) It still hits me. What I heard God say, remember, This was happening while I was paying all this money and reading all these books and trying to deal with these technical arguments for the problem of evil. If you don't like the fact that God doesn't speak to people, deal with it. He does. What I heard God say to me is you better not cheapen this. And I watched these people emaciated and abused walking out of these shelters having been tortured by being even kept alive and having to dig the graves of their family members and children. Significant evil is the description I want to put in there. We're not just dealing with a problem of evil. We're dealing with a problem of significant evil. You and I have got to answer the question for somebody that the sex slave trade of children exists in this world and is going on while you and I are sitting in comfortable chairs. You and I have got to deal with the fact that right now, There is a woman being beaten to a bloody pulp simply because she burned dinner. You and I are dealing in a world that has significant evil and we cannot cheapen the conversation. In order to not cheapen it, do you see why I started with point one where I needed to? It's got to be about understanding where this person is coming from. We cannot cheapen our responses and just go, oh, well, you know, obviously this is how God could do it. It's so much deeper than that. The very fact, I think Ben and I had this conversation in the parking lot when he asked me, he made the mistake of asking me about a year ago how I was doing, and I was depressed. And the reason I was depressed is because I'd had another day as a law enforcement officer having to deal with the consistent face of pain for 12 hours straight and then come here and had to put on a smile while I was picking my kids up from Awana. Ben made the mistake of asking me how I was doing, and I made the mistake of telling him the truth, that I was having a hard time with it, that I struggle even to this day. Is it okay for me to say the fact that God can somehow be the ultimate being of joy and know that there are children who are being bought in Asian countries right now for abuses that I will not describe to you? But God still maintains his joy. I admire him for that alone because I have a hard time with that. Can God coexist with such significant evil? The key question is why would God allow significant evil? Why would God allow significant evil? And point A essentially gets us back to what we have already said earlier in the evening, that God sees value in free choice versus robotic acceptance of God. God sees value of free choice versus the acceptance, the robotic acceptance of God. 
God knew upon the creation of the world that it would reject him and knew that that rejection would have a very dark appearance, that it would result in a whole host of terrifying things that, humanities would, that humanity would figure out how to do. Paul describes it even back in the time when he was writing Romans as that we invent new ways of doing evil on a daily basis. God knew when he built the world as we know it that the world would end up that way. But he still understood in his infinite wisdom that the freedom of our rejection was worth the cost of the rejection itself. The freedom to reject was worth the cost of the rejection. Because otherwise, as Nancy said earlier, the alternative would be a creation of nothing more than robots. Machines that could do nothing other than love God and worship God because that was the only thing that they could have been created to do. The question is, does that even ask or does that even answer things like the problems that come from tornadoes and earthquakes and fires and droughts and famines? Here's where we ask the question in point B about moral evil versus natural evil. Because you might be able to use freedom as, an ex- as a way to explain why there's moral evil in the world. But how do you use freedom to explain that a tornado rips through a trailer park? Or not even a trailer park. We saw it just this last year. I mean, it decimated entire towns in the Midwest, and it's going to do it again this year. It, it seems to consistently be that way. Does freedom answer that? I would argue for you that the answer to that question is yes, but it's a little bit more complicated to see. That you and I do not fully understand the deep effects of disconnection from God. Disconnection from God is that point there. I read this week in preparation of a philosopher that essentially argued that it could very well have been that in the garden, tornadoes still existed, but nobody experienced suffering as a result of them. But that God, instead, once human beings had rejected him, knowing that he could use that rejection for their own redemption, decided to allow these physical components to draw people to himself by allowing these physical things to cause suffering in their lives. There's even a text, and I should have put the reference on on there, and just the fact that I'm telling you there's even a text, and I can't quote it, shows you what kind of scriptural quoter I am, but uh, that that the author writes that that creation itself groans for the revelation of what we will be in Christ linking for us the fact that the natural world itself and the devastation that we see there is indeed connected for the fact that we have rejected God and need to be called back to him. So what I'm essentially saying is I'm starting to answer the questions that I've laid out in C. Is all suffering evil? Point one, can suffering be useful? Yeah. Yeah. And friends, this would be the opportunity when you're having the conversation with somebody to having already spent time meditating on it. How has God used suffering for redemption in your life? And that's the second point. Can suffering be redemptive? Can it be useful? Can it be redemptive? 
I think the answer must be yes. And hopefully I've established for you why I think that that's the case. But when it comes down to it, I can never establish it for that conversation as well as you can, because I would almost guarantee that if you've been following Christ for more than a year, that you have seen this principle at work. And the reason why I would argue that is because having spent a significant amount of time studying the New Testament, I can tell you what seems to be the main theme that pops up over and over again is that you are going to suffer and that God is going to use it. That seems to be one of the biggest themes of the New Testament. And so I don't think it's unreasonable for me to believe that if you've followed Christ for more than a year, because there seems to be kind of like an initial period where everything goes great for most people. And I think that that's good. I think that's actually part of the plan. Like he doesn't want to scare you off at like the moment that you decide to follow him. But at some point, you're going to smack into something difficult. And God is going to use it. And you are going to grow. So what does this ultimately mean? And the person that asked me this question isn't even here tonight. And so I hesitate to finish with it, but I'm going to because it's in my notes. Is God ultimately then the source of evil? If you have somebody, you've got a train going down the track, and somebody, and if it's, it's going to go over a cliff, and if somebody can pull a switch and stop the train from going over this cliff, are they responsible when they don't pull the switch? And that's what God does, in a sense. He, he lets the evil happen. He doesn't pull the switch. But still, you think, well, that guy who didn't pull the switch is responsible. Then you say, well, God didn't make the train go over the switch. But if he still didn't pull it, he didn't pull and stop it. And if I were to then steal your analogy, or I guess work with it instead of steal. Okay. Let's see me as more altruistic than I actually okay. am. So let's work with your analogy and say, if God does not pull the switch, the what, we, what we essentially want to be able to establish is that God has a good reason for not pulling the switch. Right. And though I have not definitively argued it this evening, I hope you can clearly understand how I would answer that question, that God does indeed have good reasons for not pulling that switch. If, if even if, uh, if we're establishing it from the simple concept of suffering can be useful and redemptive, if God intervened every single time that something terrible was about to happen to you, would you actually grow from the experience of that thing that had originally started to happen. You, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't be grow, you wouldn't grow at all, right? Essentially, we'd be a world full of baby Christians. All of us looking to God to fix our problem instead of looking to God in the midst of the problem, which is a significant difference. One of the most controversial things that I initially heard, and I say initially because it was controversial, only until I recognized what he was saying is the man who mentored me that I never met by the name of Dallas Willard said that God is in the business of preparing each of us to rule. And the controversial component he said to it is in order to do that, he has to work in each of us to make us so that we can do exactly what we want. And initially when you hear that, you're like, no, no, that's like the last thing that we need, right? We, I don't want to be given my way. No, 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 no. What he wants to do, when I shared this phrase with Wayne, he said it so well 
in response is that what God wants to do, because he knows he needs to, is he needs to change my wanter, right? Because he is changing me to rule with him. And so as, as, he, as he works through these difficulties, he seems to use these things just like carbon being compressed into a diamond. He uses suffering in that preparation for what he, I, I mean, we're dealing with 80 to 100 years here on this scale. I, I can't even begin to describe to you what it's going to look like in this next stage, but we've got a whole lot more time there than we're going to have here. Suffering will be used to train us for that job. So, is God, I'm sorry, John, did you want to say something? I saw your hand go up for a moment. Yeah, and, and the way that I, we'll fill these blanks here, and hopefully that'll answer that question in terms of what we're dealing with, is that if God, is God ultimately the source of evil? Um, creation of free beings leads to the opportunity for evil. And by evil, what I would mean is, so it leads to the opportunity for evil. By evil, what I mean is that it leads to the origin of rebellion. It gives us the possibility for rebellion. Because he created Lucifer, he was one of the shining whatevers, and then Lucifer had free will. I love that, because you're recognizing this isn't even just a human problem, is it? Yeah. No, but he but he had other wants as well, right? He had other desires as well. There are lots of different ways to look at that, but I think I, I really appreciate that you brought up that this is not uniquely a human problem. That it's just this is how we have a tendency to frame it. But remember that this was an angelic problem at one point as well. <laughs> we're, we're not the only ones that screwed it up, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but there. They're not so much confusing in terms of the contents of how to answer the question. It's more the 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 method that you're going to use in discussion, because this person may not be actually looking for the theological philosophical answer, right? They they they're looking for comfort and explanation uh, of what's happening, and so often God does not provide us that that answer, right? The one thing I didn't put in here that I would just want to throw down, because I really love how you opened the door to this too, is that, that God is just as well, right? I mean, another way to answer this question is very simply, why should we expect God to do anything good for any of us? We all turned our back on him. Every single one of us turned our back on him. And what we deserve is to be eternally separated from him, for him to say, thy will be done right? That's what we deserve. That would be justice. The very fact that he doesn't do that 
is it starts to point us to the recognition of God's mercy instead of how could he allow this small problem? Well, the fact is you deserve that small problem. I don't like using that method of explanation. It rarely brings people a lot of comfort in the meantime. However, I feel like it is 100% true. Hold on. Well, I defer to the judge here. <laughs> God uses suffering to bring to call people back to himself, right? I mean, we've we've said that. That's it. and and the question even in and of itself, if God removed all those things, would people turn to praise God? What you're telling me is that no, they they wouldn't. That and that seems once you've spent some time with human beings, you recognize that that's patently true. <laughs> that typically we rarely use blessing mm-hmm. as a method of praise. And could we also say, like, if God so loved us, that if he doesn't want anybody to die, how great is his suffering? Yeah, see yeah. that Jesus. Like, I mean, we could, I mean, we don't have the right perspective. Oh, how that is true in so many different ways, right? Mm-hmm. We, we rarely have that right perspective. And that, like the peaks and the valleys. that's Paul's argument in Romans 9. You're essentially just giving me your version of Paul's, yeah. Paul's argument in Romans yeah. 9. That what if by, uh, by allowing some to head towards condemnation, it shows the objects of his mercy, his grace and goodness, right? That's, that is that argument. You didn't know you were preaching to me from the Bible. Okay, we've gone significantly over time, but what I love is that there are small conversations that are happening because you're dealing with this information, and this is information that ought to be dealt with. I will uh, respect the rest of our time and, and stop here, but I encourage you, continue to work through this, and let me pray for you. Yeah, I want to do that. Let me pray for you, and then we'll leave. God, we pause to recognize your mercy because we know, I know, that even after following you for as long as I have, I'm still a very dark person. And I'm still very much in need of that mercy that continues to be fresh for us today. And I praise you for its availability, knowing that it comes through Christ. And we praise you for his work Praise you that we have had the opportunity to receive this love that we should be called your friends. God, help us to show that to other people. There's so much pain that's out there. Help us not to cheapen that pain, but instead to see it clearly and with open arms to be willing to walk through pain with other people just like you were willing to walk through our pain. God, use us so that your greatness can be seen. Amen.